Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. I, I appreciate you, no matter whether they do or don't. I, I'm just, just saying. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this... Oh, just checking. Somebody uh, from another church came up, you know, one of my pastor buddies said, uh, hey, you know, it's, uh, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. And I said... Oh, yeah? Uh, cool. I hope you guys have fun with that, because at our church, it's Pastor Appreciation Month every month, because our people are so amazing and great. So, showed him, didn't I? But I, uh, I appreciate the other folks on our team, especially on our staff. I mean, for a church our size to uh, like have our worship leader, director guy that runs all the, you know, oversees all the tech and musicians, he's, he's uh, able to be away this weekend. And for us to be able to have incredible worship leader and team still jump in, I just, man, we are so, so incredibly blessed. So I am really, really grateful. Well, this week we continue in our study of the Beatitudes, which is, uh, are a set of teachings um, that Jesus began what's known as the Sermon on the Mount with. And we've been working our way through one of these per well, more than a week. Some of them we've taken a month on. We've been pretty much in this for the whole uh, summer. And this week, we are on verse 8, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Which, I was just thinking about these images of pure in hearts, and I didn't have permission to show, like, some of the funny stuff that, you know, some of our parents <laughs> put, email us or, or text us or put on their Facebook. I, I wish I would have thought of that sooner because I see a lot of our kids and I go, oh my goodness, that is cute. That is pure in heart. And then we see some of your postings and go, oh yeah, those kids are also terrorists, right? So, um, now the same might be true of dogs, but I think pure in heart. And I start thinking about, you know, at least our dog, and this isn't a picture of our dog because ours is, you know, she just sits around looking at you, so there's no fun pictures of our dog. But I thought about what does the diary of this of a dog look like? And I found a, a gosh, this was a, a while ago, years ago. Somebody wrote out, uh, and I'll just read some of them. Here's what a dog's daily diary entry would look like. Ready? 8 a.m. Dog food, my favorite thing. 9.30, a car ride, my favorite thing. 9.40, a walk in the park, my favorite thing. 10.30, got rubbed and petted, my favorite thing. 12 o'clock, milk bones, my favorite thing. 3 o'clock, wagged my tail, my favorite thing. 7 o'clock, got to play ball together, my favorite thing. Yes, 8 o'clock, wow, watch TV with the people my favorite thing, 11 o'clock, this doesn't happen at our house, but in some houses I hear, sleeping on the bed, my favorite thing. Yeah, because dogs, they're just pure in heart. Um, by contrast, there was also a cat diary that I'll read part of to you. <laughs> the heading is, day 983 of my captivity. <clears throat> My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while all the other inmates and I are fed hash or some sort of dry nuggets. Although I make my contempt for the rations perfectly clear, I nevertheless must eat something in order to keep up my strength. The only thing that keeps me going is my dream of escape. In an attempt to disgust them, I once again vomit on the carpet. 
today. I decapitated a mouse and dropped its headless body at their feet. I hope this would make their hearts be fearful since it demonstrated my capabilities as a hunter, but they smacked me on the ears and said, don't ever do that. I, I, I was disgusted by them. Today, I was almost successful in an attempt to assassinate one of my tormentors by weaving around his feet as he was walking. <laughs> I must try this again tomorrow, but at the top of the stairs. There you go, right? And between those two diary entries, right, there's just more proof that, that dogs are pure in heart, right? And cats are <laughs> evil, yeah? <clears throat> well, blessed are thou, now I got to break the bridge into the verse, right? Now, <laughs> blessed are the pure in hearts, says Jesus, for they will see God. And since we don't have the option of, um, of being dogs or some of us may be cats, um, which could make a long comparison between the two there. Uh, but, but since we don't have the option of just becoming a dog or a child, the question I think is, okay, so then how do we become pure in heart? How do we become joyful and almost uh, seemingly naive um, do we have to really become dumb like a dog? Like, my dog is really dumb. Like, I feed her a treat in the morning, two treats in the morning, um, and after three minutes, she's forgotten that she's gotten them. So if I don't get out the door quick enough, she's back, you know, like she's never had them. That's my dog. So my dog is really dumb, and I really would prefer, in order to be pure in heart, that I didn't have to be completely stupid. Um, so how do we become pure in heart? And this really has been a question for centuries. Not only how do we become pure in heart, but how is it that we might see God? How will we be the ones that see God? Um, how can we stand before God and be accepted by God? And we read through the Old Testament, and the standard was basically for the people of God. It was the, the law, the Mosaic law. Um, all through the Old Testament, this is a description of how one could be the people of God and then relate to God. And, and there was the law. Um, problem with that there is it was all external stuff. Uh, but it was what we now call the Old Covenant. It's the way the people of God related to God. And you go all through the Old Testament and the people of God and the Mosaic Law. And then... Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's hundreds of years, and in this long, silent gap between the Old Testament prophet writings and where it picks up again with um, uh, Matthew in the what we call the New Testament, um, the religion of Judaism really developed uh, quite a bit in that gap period because suddenly there were now... I'll simplify this, Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and keepers of the law, uh, and they wanted to even further develop what holiness, what being right with God looked like, and so they expanded these laws. There were uh, 252 laws in the Mosaic law, that the law of Moses in, in, the, in the Torah, um, and they expanded this to 613 so from 252, they wanted to expand these laws to, uh, estimates are about 613 by most Bible scholars. And by the way, almost 100 of those additional ones um, were pivoted against women. Interesting cultural note uh, that tells us a little something about that day and age and time. Uh, but here's the deal. 
religion becomes externally focused and must get more and more rigorous in order for people to feel like they're doing a good job or earning what they're trying to earn or growing the way they think they should grow in order to see God, to please God, to be okay with God. And then Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives. We read through the Gospels, and over and over and over, Jesus takes this externally focused, performance-based religion, and he flips it on its head. Actually makes them look pretty foolish. And remember, they'd been invested in this for hundreds of years, carrying out traditions and making laws more and more stern and strict and stringent. There was a kingdom, all right, and if you wanted to be a part of what they interpreted God's way, his rule, his reign to look like, then you better line up with this ever-increasing list of rules that they were doling out and putting out there, which, interestingly, um, even they couldn't keep up, but certainly you couldn't keep up with what they were demanding of you. And so Jesus comes and he starts talking about a kingdom. And this would have really been a wonderfully confusing but exciting twist for all the people that would listen to him. He he performed all these miracles and says he healed diseases of every kind, every kind of disease. He was healing and preaching, the Bible says he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching, there's a new story that you can enter into. There's a way, there is a way, there is a kingdom, there is a story called the kingdom of God. And so when he starts talking about the kingdom of God, author Dallas Willard suggests that everybody that hears this would want to know two things. You start talking about a kingdom, they want to know two things. First, okay, what will this kingdom really be like? What's this kingdom going to be like? That's the first one. And the second one was, well, who would be able to qualify to get into this kingdom. And so as Jesus teaches, he starts talking about what the kingdom of God is like. uh, And he starts demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. And when he comes to begin his teaching ministry, where we have found ourselves here in the Beatitudes, which we're calling this series the upside-down message of Jesus because he flips everything upside down that they expected. And he begins to teach And we've gone through each of these verses over the last several months. And he says things that are completely foreign and bizarre that don't at all match up with what the Pharisees had been telling them or what their world that was dominated by Roman rule had been telling them. They hear Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that means broken. Blessed are the broken? No way. We don't want to be broken. Um, But he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. What kind of kingdom is this, right? Those who get out here, what's going on in here, those who get real about their pain instead of hiding it or stuffing it or faking it or pretending it and thinking that that looks spiritual. Sounds like the Pharisees on the back end. Jesus says, don't live that way. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the, whew, this was a tough one. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that keep their power under control. We discovered the word meek means power under control. Blessed are those people, not those that can't keep control and seek to dominate and uh, manipulate and rule and insult and use power over in order to get their way. No, 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 no. Jesus says they might be in charge in the kingdom of this world. They might even be the emperor, the king, the president. Uh, That's not how it works in the kingdom of God, friends. 
Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, last week, we spent the last of our, uh, or no, that was a few weeks ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for power, not for holy looking living, but for righteousness, for they will be filled that their hunger and thirst is pointed at the right thing, at God, not trying to accumulate more and more stuff. Blessed are those who are merciful, we wrapped up last week. Um, for they will be shown mercy. Again, all of these were very countercultural. How are you going to protect yourself if we're being merciful? How are we going to dominate anybody if we're being merciful? What kind of kingdom is this, Jesus? And then he gets to the one we're on this week. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And again, imagine the reaction of the people who were listening and had been watching their religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees who were held up as the elite, hear this, blessed are the pure in, not holiness, the pure in heart. Jesus is saying, no, 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 What's matters, what matters is what's on the inside. That is of primary importance, what is on the inside the pure in heart, not the holy looking, the pure in heart. For they, and by the way, there are translators that say a more accurate translation of all of these beatitudes um, would be this, they and they alone, right? So blessed are the pure in hearts, for they and they alone will see God. I mean, check this out. They assumed it was all the external religious trappings that mattered. And instead, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's an inside job, right? The pure in heart are the ones that qualify. It's, a, it's not an outward-looking purity based on following the rules and, and being a right part of the right club and, and belonging to the religious elite and hiding your sin. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's not the outside. What matters most is the inside. Now, in the beginning, probably people are like, yes, wow, that's way different than what we've been told. The blessed are the, the outwardly holy looking people. And now Jesus is saying, no, no, it's an inside job. Blessed are the pure in hearts. But it wouldn't take long, would it, before, and maybe this resonates with some of us, <laughs> it resonates with me, but maybe some of you even hear, blessed are the pure in heart, and at first we're like, woohoo, yeah, and then, no, wait a minute. Oh man, that's actually could be bad news too, right? Like, how is that possible? Like, how are we going to do that? How are we going to become pure in, in heart? Is, is a pure heart even possible? For God to see us as having a pure heart, is that even possible? Because if that's what it takes, I'll be honest, whew, I don't qualify for that either. Like, I don't get the outward holy thing happening. I'm not good enough for that. And if I got to be pure in heart, that, oh man, that's going to be pretty rough. It's going to be pretty rough. I don't qualify for either, some of us might say. But again, these statements of Jesus, if we look on how he unpacks them throughout the Gospels and the rest of Scripture, what we find is this. When you keep reading the Gospel stories, the people he says, hey, this one, they're qualified, right? Like the pure in heart, they're qualified. Look at the characters that he comes across in the Gospels, right? People that Jesus said were qualified, like the woman at the well who was the wrong racial makeup, had been married way too many times, and religiously didn't agree with Jesus and the rest of the Jews, and she becomes one of the pure in heart. She is held up as an example, actually the first evangelist. <laughs> uh, how about the prodigal son, 
who has messed up his life royally. But he qualifies. How about tax collectors who were despised because they were traitors to the Jewish people. They were traitors to their own people, colluding with the oppressive Roman government to extract more and more money. And most of the time they were thieves because they could get away with it. And suddenly they're held up as followers of Jesus. Tax collectors, prostitutes, uh, people that are not good enough, lepers and people that were outcast physically. All the externals that every one of these characters that Jesus holds up as really heroes in the Gospels so we can go, okay, okay, I'm not too far gone. I'm not too far gone. They're the pure in heart. They qualify to be a part of God's kingdom. Okay, maybe it, maybe it is good news. See, because it's not about the externals. The kingdom of God belongs to those whose hearts are drawn to Jesus. It's an inside job. It's an inside job. See, what Jesus was demonstrating to everyone all throughout the Gospels and his interactions with these different characters in the story is, is that the pure in heart can't be done on our own. Not by external performance and not even by, by just trying really hard. I mean, again, the Pharisees proved that over and over. Jesus would, was the only people Jesus was really harsh towards in the, in the Bible. The only ones were not the sinners, weren't even the Roman, you know, oppressive government people that were, that were really brutal towards his people. He wasn't even harsh toward them. He was harsh toward who? Yeah, the Pharisees, the religious elite. That's the only people Jesus really got super sideways with. Um, because, friends, what we need, just like the Pharisees, is not, is not better striving, better behavior, um, we cannot earn holiness. We cannot earn right standing before God. We can't qualify on our own. We need the work of Jesus. That's the only way that you and I can become pure in heart. He makes it possible. He makes it available by grace to every one of us who trust him and depend on him and say yes to following him. So no matter our valiant self-effort, friends, we cannot do it at our own. We might be able to manage some behaviors a little bit here and there, but we will not live out of a pure heart. See, more religion or better, stricter behaviors, it can't make us pure in heart. But there's still a bit of a problem when we think about being pure in heart because we go, I don't know if that really lines up with what my experience is, even as a Christian, and especially those of you who are followers of Jesus. Um, we hear all the time from really wonderful and gifted preachers and teachers um, and well-meaning folks uh, an interpretation of Jeremiah 17.9, right? It's, it's what the Old Testament says about our hearts. Well, I'm not pure in heart, right? Because right there in Jeremiah 17.9, it says this. We can't be pure in heart because the verse says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And a lot of us grab that verse and go, that's it. That's my life verse, <laughs> Right? We think it's humility. I mean, that's my life verse, right? A pure heart? Good luck. I mean, my heart's died. I identify with this verse right here in Jeremiah. Um, people, we think often. We even think it's humble to say, oh yeah, that's me. My heart, just like that verse says, I'm proof. I'm living proof. My heart is wicked, right? Your heart is wicked. It's, uh, 
the voice that even uh, would be tempting if somebody was making fun of this on a Saturday Night Live skit might sound something pretty evil. And I want to say that if we are using this as our defining life verse, it is an example of the enemy using scripture to twist the truth of who you really are. Who you really are. See, this description from Jeremiah 17 was under the Old Covenant. And by the way, even in the Old Covenant, you don't just stop reading right there, right? You got to keep reading, right? Somebody wants to anchor onto that verse and go, oh, that's the truth, right? No, they, listen, keep reading, keep reading, right? And you get to Jeremiah a little farther if you flip ahead in your Bible to Jeremiah 31. It, it gives us the answer to this desperately wicked uh, heart, um, and God actually says, here's what I'm going to do about that heart. I- I'm going to change my covenants that I made with my people. The old covenant was being lived from the outside, and it wasn't penetrating inside. It was just about following the rules and the law, and it wasn't actually helping people live free, follow the rules. It was uh, just do your duty, and, and if you do that, then your life will work out and God will be happy. But God says in, in Jeremiah 31, he says, that doesn't work. I'm making a new covenant, and the word covenant is promise. He had a covenant with his people, the Jews in the Old Testament. He has a covenant with us, the church. That's the New Testament. Um, but because the heart is desperately wicked, external rules and pressure, we know it doesn't work. God knows it doesn't work. So God says because of this, verse 31, he says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. That was the people of God in the Old Testament, right? It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenants, though I was a husband to them. Verse 33 is where it gets exciting. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And by the way, that extends to you and I. So hear these words that extend now to you and I as the people of God. After that time, I will put my law in their minds not just reading it out here, and write it on their hearts. I will be their people, and they will be, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. Now, did you catch that back in verse 33? Right where, where, where he says, um, this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. That wicked, evil, desperately sinful heart that, that was true of us before we were in Christ. God says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that because this new covenant that he gives us is one that gives us a new identity, God actually gives us a new heart when we become his. It's a promise in scripture, a new identity and a new heart. The same thing is said even more beautifully, I think, if you keep reading, right? Get to Ezekiel. A couple books later, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, God says, and he's describing now this new covenant, he says this, I will give you a new heart, And I'll put a new spirit in you. And I'll remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to, to keep my laws. I mean, this is mind-blowing, this prophecy that describes what happens when the Messiah will come, that, that we get a new heart. It's a promise of God to give a new heart, to give a new spirit. You know, that hardened heart that we so often experience when we think about how our hearts are fallen short. Oh, my heart gets really hard, right? No, God's going to replace that, he says, with a softened heart. He says that we'll actually want to start to do the things. We'll want to do the things that he says are the way to go, the way to walk, the pathway to walk. Look at Romans 2 this week, verse 28 and 29. I don't have time to get into it um, so that we can try to get close to on time here. But, but in this passage, the Apostle Paul talks about this from a New Testament perspective where he says, you know, back in the, in the Old Testament, you would, circumcision was the, was the description that would show that you meant it, that you belonged to the people of God. And, and Paul is saying that physical stuff is not what matters. What matters is the inward. Your, your heart will actually be the thing that gets circumcised, if you will. That's the phrase he actually uses because it's an inward change that matters. It's the inward change, right? You, you, you get heart surgery, right? You get a, a heart transplant when you come to faith in Jesus. He changes our identity. He says, you belong to me. You are a child of God. You have been made new. Old things are passed away. All things become new. So friends, those of you who are in Christ, your follower of Jesus, you've said yes to him. Um, you have a new heart. You have a new heart. Some of us are going, I don't feel like it. Maybe I don't belong to him. We'll get to that either this today or, or, or uh, the next time we, we speak about this. But, but you have a new heart. In fact, it's almost a secret because so often we hear people say, no, no, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Um, and we sin. So we go, well, that makes sense. I'm a sinner. I see myself sin. I'm a sinner, right? The problem with that is it's nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere are the people of God called sinners. Nowhere. No place. It sounds really humble. It even sounds accurate, but it's not your true identity. It's not your true heart. Now, again, I do behaviors that somebody go, yep, he is a sinner, right? Uh, I have behaviors that look that way, but the truest thing about me, the truest thing about you, if you are a follower of Jesus, is not our behavior and our sin. Even those things are important and we need to to tend to those things. We can't let those things take over our life because they will be destructive. But the truest thing about you and me is not our addiction. It's not our anger. It's not our shortcomings. It's not our failures. The truest thing about you and about me is that you are a new creation and that God has given you a new heart. Now, a couple things I want to um, talk about here. Related to this. So God sees you and I, pure in heart. As the new covenant says, we are his children. Um, we're pure in heart. And some of us go, really, me? Pure in heart? 
Yeah, if you've said yes to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, he has given you that new heart. I mean, you think about this. When somebody says a prayer to come into the family of God and to say yes to Jesus and begin to follow Jesus, they make that commitment. Uh, So many times, you know, we're like, oh, it doesn't matter where you're at or what's going on in your life. God's grace is for you. And that's true, right? But then they start following Jesus. and, And right away... We want to make sure that their behavior really quickly lines up. Now, don't, hear, don't get me wrong here. The things that we do and struggle with, uh, the sins, can be very damaging. But, but helping someone maybe understand who God says they are and help them live out of that might be an approach worth taking rather than scolding behavior uh, and, and um, trying to shame people or use shoulds. Well, you should be doing this. Again, that's a... That's a sure sign that people are living under the old covenant. It's a sure sign that they're being driven by external performance and behavior and not by the heart. When you hear somebody say should a lot, uh, they are giving a really kind of weak, not well thought through manipulative pressure that tells you you're not doing enough, you should do this. Um, It's not a heart motivator. And sadly, a lot of us live that way. And a lot of us live that way because we were brought up either in a family or a church, that what was important was how things look on the outside. So it didn't matter if you were really um, a believer. It didn't matter if you um, really struggled with something. What mattered is that you looked good. What matters is that you got your behaviors together. What matters is that you got the right answer in the Sunday school class. What matters is you got the right answer in church or youth group. What matters maybe in a family that operates that what's on the outside, how things look is what matters. In a family that way, what would matter is that we don't ever fight. We all get along, right? Whether we do or don't. And it's not okay to be sad or depressed or confused or angry, Because we don't operate that way, not in our family. And that is a sure driver of dysfunction and unhealth. And we drag that into our Christianity and think we're supposed to live as Christians that same way. Some of us live this uphill battle of trusting that God really loves us, that he really sees us as righteous because we got these messages from a church or a family or somewhere growing up that just pounded us over and over with guilt and shame and legalism and performance. Maybe we were in a church that said, hey, listen, in order for you to belong here and be accepted here, you need to agree with all the theology, whether you understand it or not, you need to check the box and agree with everything that we say. Don't worry about trying to think it through or study it through or, or work it through and grow. No, you need to just check the box and we'll call you discipled. We're going to go through enough Bible studies that you'll be a disciple. And they think that's discipleship. And some people, that's how they were quote unquote discipled. And so it's really easy to find places where deficiency hits, where I am not doing all the things I should be doing according to scripture. And so I start beating myself up about what a horrible Christian I am. And I begin, wow, my heart is Desperately wicked and deceitful, I am some Christian I am. And when you grow up in a system that perpetuates those myths, it is very, very difficult to begin to live out of the truth of Scripture, of who God says you are, that you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Just unpack that verse and think about that being true of you. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ. That's a tall, kind of almost outlandish looking statement that God makes about our identities. 
But when you and I begin to believe what he says is true of us, won't that change everything? Rather than operating from deficiency, thinking God is angry at us, like maybe your, heaven, or your earthly father was angry with you, or, or one of your parents was very hard to please, and you think, well, that's the same way with God. Rather than living that way, what if you start to trust that the gospel is true? That the good news of Jesus has made a whole new way for us, has changed everything. And now the things we do, it's not because we're being shamed into it, it's because we're being invited to live out of this new heart, even when it doesn't square up. Listen, I know me, and I know the people around me could go, yeah, we could make a pretty quick case that Doug is not a saint, right? If you didn't laugh, you don't know me at all. Like, this is, well, I get, maybe you're convinced as well, yeah. So, um, it, because it's not hard. I blow it. I sin. I don't go, well, that's okay. My sins are fine. No, I don't want to. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live out of resentment. Not because there's a rule that says, Doug, don't live out of resentment. Um, I want to live disconnected from bitterness and resentment because I know that the best way for me to live is out of the identity that Christ says is true of me. Right? I want to live free of any kind of addiction and looking to other sources to meet my need, not because God's going to be mad if I'm drinking too much. No, I, I just don't want to be enslaved to anything. I want to live free. I want to live free out of a heart who God says I am, who he says you are, who he declares you to be. That's how, friends, we want to, that's how we want to live. And the next time we talk about this, I want to get into, okay, so, all right, God says all this great stuff about me. Um, then why do I still sin? Maybe it's not true of me. Maybe I'm not a, really a born-again person or not real Christian because I'm not living out of that stuff that he says is true about me. Well, just real quick, and I'm hoping we can get into this deeper in a few weeks. Um, it's a process of growth, right? Transformation is over time and following Jesus. So I keep blowing it in certain areas, but you know what? I'm trusting that he is gradually growing me up. And as I become more of a grown-up in my faith, some of those things whew, are going to have less power. Some of those sins are going to be less powerful. Um, and then some of our sins, some of our addictions in particular, are because of unhealed places in our heart that are so hungry and looking for life. And so we attach life to the wrong thing. <clears throat> and when we attach the idea that I can get my needs met from this particular uh, addiction, there's probably some wound in here that God wants to heal to bring you into wholeness and fullness so that you can live more congruently with who he says you are. And again, we'll get deeper into that another week um, because none of us are perfect. And some of us might be tempted to think that God just sees us in a way that is completely unreasonable. But the truth is, friends, he's growing us up. He's growing us up. And again, that metaphor might be difficult for some of us because as we were growing up, the people around us didn't have a lot of patience for our failures. Um, some of us as parents have to admit, I don't have a lot of patience for my kid when he messes up. We could have Noah talk for probably two, three hours here if you wanted a long list. Um, 
we're all learning, we're all growing. And God is a, a good father who wants to call us into freedom out of living, out of who he says we are. Because friends, he sees you as the pure in heart. If you've said yes to Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has changed your DNA and your wiring. He's given you a new identity. And when God looks at you, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are forgiven, we are clean, we are new, and we are, friends, the pure in heart. Uh, Worship team, if you'll come. I want to clarify something. Um, I mentioned it, but I just want to say this. I feel compelled to say, listen, just because we're living out of our identity and out of grace does not mean that we don't take sin seriously. It doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously at all. We, We do take sin very seriously because sin steals, kills, and destroys. When I follow a sinful path, which is simply going a direction that God says, nah, don't do that, then I want to say, okay, I'm going to trust you on that one, God. That if I go down that path, whether I understand it or not, that it's not going to lead me to life. It's going to lead me towards something broken. Um, Some of us, maybe even last week, uh, God spoke to us about someone that we need to call and reconcile a relationship with. And your good heart, your true heart, your Christ-in-you heart, wants to make that call. But there's this other part of us that goes, no, I'm kind of enjoying hanging on to my resentment. I talked to somebody this week, they're like, honestly, I'm just mad. And I'm tired of being the first one that always has to call. And so uh, I haven't done it yet. I know who I'm supposed to call, but I haven't done it yet. I'm too stubborn. I'm too proud to take that first step toward that broken relationship. Now, somebody might go, and that person actually said, I guess I have a wicked heart. And I, want, and I said, no, no, no. You're choosing a path. Your heart is good. You're choosing a path that if you pay attention, that path of resentment, God says don't be resentful because he knows what it does to you. Right? It locks us up in pain and fear and anger and we are unable to look around then and see God at work around us. We are unable to look around and see the beauty that's there. We're unable to get free and live out of a relationship with someone that whether we agree or not, we're going to love them and be committed to them. But we get tied into sin (laughs) And we choose this path of resentment or anger or stubbornness. And you can do that. You have that choice. But friends, I've done that far too many times. I've resisted doing what God's called me to do somewhere. I've lived in a way then that leads me not to life or freedom, but into more tension and anxiety. And wouldn't you like to be free of that and live out of your new heart? There are areas of sin in your life that God's calling you to lay down, whether you understand why or why not. Wouldn't you like to be free? Wouldn't you like to live out of what he says is true about you? So those of you that are followers of Jesus, here's my question for you to wrestle with this week. How will you begin? There's two questions. How will you begin to recognize and challenge the lie that your heart is wicked? How will you begin to recognize and challenge that lie that we hear so often? 
Second one is this. How will you begin to live out of the truth of Scripture that you have a new heart? That you are seen by God as the pure in heart. Can we believe what God says is true even when our own messages are so different? Can we, can we, are we willing to start aligning slowly with that truth so that our hearts start to believe what is actually true?